0: Turn to uh, Colossians chapter one, Colossians chapter one. And our text for this morning will begin in verse uh, 15. We'll read through verse 20. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this, your word. And Father, we're grateful for whom it speaks of. It speaks of the word who became flesh, Jesus Christ, your son. And so, Father, we ask that through this reading and through my feeble words that you would make much of Jesus, that we would see him high and lifted up, that we would see him in the midst of the busyness and the chaos of our lives, that we would see him here this morning. So, Father, we pray that you would bless your word, that you would bless its teaching We pray that we would come to know our sin, but to know also our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we recognize this is only possible through the power of your Spirit. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask that you would bless this now for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, My children, uh, I have two, they're five and three. Um, Well almost five, uh, are little narcissists, okay, they're, they're, they're self-involved narcissists, just like your children, okay, so don't, don't get too high and mighty on me, all right, uh, and the reason I know this is because uh, my wife and I live with them all the time, okay, uh, but beyond that, uh, my wife and I have done little to discourage their narcissism, and here's why, it's totally accidental. But the reason is because if you were going to our house, our house is this old, small, 1960s, like, Florida home. And so we have, for some reason, one of our walls in the dining room is a full, like, wall mirror. Not sure why. I guess people in the 60s like to look at themselves. Don't know what ha- don't know what's happening, right? But uh, it's a full, just, mirror, okay? So at any point in our living room slash dining room, um, you can just watch yourself, you know, do things. Eat, drink, uh, Anything, right? You just watch yourself constantly. Uh, and so that doesn't really discourage them from being anything but narcissists, right? Because they're constantly on center stage uh, in their minds, okay? The other thing that we do, and I think you do it as well, is uh, we film everything our kids do. Right? We have an iPhone, we have two iPhones, and so we're constantly filming uh, our children doing anything and everything. And because of that, my beard's a little longer today. I don't know if uh, the mic is scratching or what, but. Um, so anyways, because we're always filming our kids, though, they naturally, they want to uh, watch, you know, anything. So we we'll are always sitting on the couch, and they just all of a sudden, they want to pull out our phones and obviously watch themselves on these videos that might have happened that very same day. But what's amazing about it, one of the reasons we'll discourage it is because a couple of things have happened. There's a few times where I'll be watching this video of our kids, and what's amazing is that we could be watching them, you know, like out in the yard playing, and in the moment... When I was actually playing with them in the yard, things didn't seem all that special or extraordinary. In fact, they seemed quite ordinary. Uh, but it's only in then watching the video, maybe because it's in like high resolution, you know, high def, you know, slick iPhone screen, whatever. But it's in stepping back and watching the recording of that event, where I'm I'm, I'm always struck by just how special it actually was. And maybe it's because we have to sometimes step outside of what's actually going on, right? And get a bird's eye view in order to actually understand who we are, where we are. Understand and appreciate things. I know it's happened to me a couple times when I'm watching these videos. What seemed ordinary now on the screen as I'm reflecting and taking you know taking back and looking at from a bird's eye view, it seems it seems special. It seems amazing. Colossians 1, the text we just read, verses 15 through 20, in my mind has always been a passage of that same nature. In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, which we just read, Paul, he does this huge favor. He does us this huge favor of sort of removing us just for a moment from the busyness of our lives, just for a moment from sort of the, the trees of the Christian life, and allows us to see the forest. To see the forest of God's plan of redemption. Because we're honest with ourselves, as all of us know here this morning, life is hard. It's chaotic. It's eventful. It's discouraging. It's tragic at times. It's all of those things and more. And if we add the qualifier, the Christian life, it sometimes only makes that worse, right? The Christian life is hard. It's discouraging. It's downright confusing sometimes. It's up and down. And in that moment, though, this is where Colossians 1 is a great text, because it allows us to step outside of the trees of our daily life, the trees of the Christian life, and see the forest of God's redemptive plan. So I want to do that this morning. And so look briefly, look at verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, You see, over the course of human history, things have have changed and adapted, and we've made great advancements and progress, but there's a few things that have never changed. And one of those things is the desire on the part of humanity to see and experience God. That is innate within every person. We want to see, we want to experience God. And so it's led humanity, though, down different paths. That's the reason why some people have chosen to worship nature. Right? Because you step outside of yourself for a moment, you see nature, and it's wonderful. It's, it's powerful. It's, 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 it's majestic. It's amazing. And so perhaps there is where our heart is supposed to, to land and worship. But on a more maybe practical, kind of down-to-earth level, it's also the same thing that's led people to uh, pursue psychic, like psychic readings, horoscopes, whatever we kind of see as this place where the natural and the supernatural maybe seem to overlap. So we go there to, to seek a word from, from God, from the deity, from whomever it might be. Ironically, this desire to see and experience God is also the very same thing that really sometimes creates atheists. Right? The irony is that an atheist really actually wants to know and experience God. The difficulty is that there's been some preconceived criteria. They've defined God as being, and when they look in this world, they say it doesn't match. They sort of write the whole thing off. But wherever we find ourselves as a, as a, as a human race on this spectrum, there is that innate desire within all of us. We want to see we want to experience God. And the glory of the gospel is that it recognizes this desire. And the glory of the gospel is that it reminds us that this God has actually come and revealed himself to us. That this invisible God has not remained hidden, he's not remained aloof, but he's come. He's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you've been in church for a long time or you're a, a Christian, you go, well, I know that I've heard that before thanks for the update but I ask you I ask myself as I was preparing this sermon. I was talking to my wife I go I go do, do I really believe this do I really believe that the God of the universe the one whom the text says in all things hold together that God came down in the form of a person do we marvel at that does that still blow us away does that does that reality inform the way that we live our lives does it inform the way that we hope in the midst of storms and trials? You see, the God of the universe revealed himself to us that he might love us, but also that he might save us. He revealed himself that he might save us. And, and we know how, but here's the glory of it. Think about those, those, uh, those cheesy like action movies, maybe particularly like a, of the Western variety, right? Where there's always that line as like the good guy and the bad guy are struggling in a fight or a duel to the death, and one of them says that cheesy line, prepare to meet your maker, right? And then the lights go out and that person dies, and they have met their maker, right? Well, cheesy action movie. But there's truth in that, right? Is there not? At death, every person will indeed meet this God who has revealed himself in Christ. But here's the problem. If we wait until that moment for the introduction to be made, it's too late. It's too late, for at that moment, what happens? We stand before the God of the universe with every thought laid bare, every hidden action disclosed, with no covering, with nothing but our shame and our sin. And the Bible, what does the Bible do? The Bible implores us. It says, never wait for that. Do not let death make the introduction for you, but come to know this God in the person of Jesus Christ, how he has revealed himself so that when we cross that river of death, we do come into God's presence, but this time we're covered. We come with the presence of, of another, we come with Christ Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it's this self-revelation on the part of God that really makes the Christian religion unique, that God's presence, the knowledge of God, the experience of God is not sort of only uh, for the spiritual climber. Right, God is not the great riddle that must be solved. God is not the great Santa Claus in the sky who only rewards the good, the nice, but he's come down. He's revealed himself. And the amazing thing, if we allow it to sink in, is that we think we want to experience and see God. We want to know him, and yet God's desire to know you, God's desire to restore the relationship between us, far exceeds our desires. And he came down. And you see, what this text does then is that once it establishes our sort of knowledge of Christ as Savior, it then wants us to see the areas in which he's Lord. And there's three areas I want to look at just briefly. If you look at this text, Jesus, our Savior, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, he's also Lord, and he's Lord of three things. He's Lord over this life. He's Lord over this church. And he's Lord over the life to come. Lord over this life, Lord over the church, and Lord over the life to come. Look at verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And here's what I want us to hear this morning. And in him all things Hold together. You see, this language of powers, this language of rulers and authorities is woven all throughout the letter to the Colossians. In fact, it also comes up in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if you were to look at all the places that it's mentioned, kind of look at the context, you begin to realize that what Paul is speaking about here is a very, very present, a very, very real, but a very, very unseen, if you will, spiritual presence in the world. That this world is indeed infiltrated by spiritual powers, by rulers and authorities, and there's dominion. And yet these spiritual unseen forces have very, very physical far-reaching effects in our world, in our society, in our culture. There's a reason why Satan is called the prince of this world, because he has tentacles and all these things running around, right, that, that have a direct, physical, real, evil, and negative presence in our society and if we're honest if we're honest when we just judge by what our eyes can see there are times where we think to ourselves he's winning he's winning I mean we watch the nightly news we flip on CNN and we think to ourselves he's winning these very present spiritual forces of darkness seem to be out of control seem to be gaining the advantage And this might not be good news, perhaps uh, misery just loves company, but that reality, that feeling in your gut is the very same feeling that would have been present in the Colossian church. The Colossians would have known this exact same feeling all too well. In fact, maybe even more so. I mean, Hellenistic culture, first century, second century, century—when this is written, is Chaos. Rulers rise and fall, civilizations come and go, kings are crowned and then dethroned. There's this constant tumult the whole time, chaos. It would have left the Christian wondering, is God in charge? I mean, he says a lot of great things in the scripture, but I look around and I go, I'm not so sure. And then on top of that, think of the spiritual chaos that would have been happening here in the first and second century. We joke here, uh, my wife and I all the time, that if you drive down Federal Highway and there's new construction... You can take it to the bank, it'll be one of two things, a CVS or a bank, right? If there's new construction on Federal Highway, it's a CVS or a bank. That's all we build here in Fort Lauderdale, right? CVS and banks, okay? They're in every corner, right? Well, if you were in the church, the Colossian church, in this time frame, okay, every corner wouldn't have been a CVS, wouldn't have been a bank, but it would have been a a shrine, would have been a temple every possible God, every possible religion, and they all have to be appeased. It would have have left the Christian feeling chaotic, feeling disordered, wondering, am I I physically safe here? Am I spiritually safe here? Am I safe in the life of to come, have I done my due diligence and has every God been appeased, every sacrifice made and even for the Christian that would have been a thought they, they confess Christ as Lord but they're in this, this society where there's just so many competing gods and they just wonder for a second well maybe to hedge my bets I'll also sacrifice to this one but the, but the point is that the feeling that we have in our society we flip on the news, we grab the paper we look on our phone we go it's chaos it's disorder I think Satan's winning and yet this is the same feeling that would have been present in the Colossian church and what Paul does he doesn't dull the force of those feelings they're real that feeling in your gut this morning it's real Paul doesn't make light of it he doesn't sort of sugarcoat it But he wants us to see that there's method in the madness. Look at verse 17. He, Christ, is before all things. Not all good things, not all positive things. He's not responsible for those things, but every single thing that happens under the sun, Christ is before it. He's preeminent. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And I know for some we can't even fathom that this morning. What happens in our nation, what happens in the world? As a a young parent, I fear for my children growing up in this world, and yet what does this text remind us? It reminds us that we have a God, we have Christ Jesus, and he's sovereign. He's sovereign. He's before all things, and in him, whether we can realize it or not, whether our eyes can see it all the time, in him, all things hold together. Even though it seems like it's fraying at the edges, in him, all things hold together. And his ultimate plan of redemption will come to pass. And so Paul takes this sort of cosmic focus, reminding them of Christ's lordship over all of life, But then he brings it down even more narrow, and he says he's also Lord of the church. Look at verse 18. He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. And you know, if you're like me, you wish that the things we just talked about, chaos, disorder, uh, tragedy, scandal, whatever, you wish that those were things that could just be talked about as occurring out there. Right? We wish that we could just say the world out there is a mess. The world out there is chaotic. The world out there is disordered. But the truth of the matter is that all of those adjectives we just used, unfortunately, also can be applied to the church. To the church. The church is a mess. The church is disordered. The church is chaotic. Leaders come and go. Ministries Come and go. Scandal comes and goes. The church is chaotic as well. The church is her own mess at times. And what does Paul say? But he says, He is the head of the body, Christ is the head of the body, the church. And you see what this does for us, you see, Christ's lordship doesn't excuse any of those things of, of, as being present in the church. And Christ's lordship certainly isn't the cause of any of those things happening. In the church, but the lordship of Christ is the rock that we can lean on. It's the rock that we can stand on when those things occur and realize that he is the head of this body, that he is the head of this church, that he is the great bridegroom, and his commitment to this church locally and his commitment to this church globally right, far exceeds ours. And no matter what the church goes through, no matter what the church is guilty of, Christ loves her still, Christ provides for her still, and Christ promises that even in our best attempts to screw the whole thing up, his plan of redemption will come to pass. That he will be glorified in and through his church. And so Paul wants to remind people who are sort of just thrown by what they see in the world and thrown by what they see in the church to remember that there is a God, there is a Lord, and He's Lord over all. But to kind of bring it now to kind of land the plane, look at, uh, keep going, look at verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church, He is the beginning of. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. If you were to go back and look at verse 15, there's the same language of firstborn, right? He's the firstborn of creation, and he's now the firstborn of the dead. And that language, especially the first one, that Christ is the firstborn of creation, that's thrown many people over the years. Does that mean that Christ is, is lower? then the father does that mean that christ was created like like you and i and that would obviously be hugely problematic but no no what the the language here is he is the heir of all creation he is the first by rank okay think like in the old testament think of stories like jacob and esau right who is the actual firstborn physically it's esau right but who is the firstborn by promise by rank It's Jacob, right? That Christ is the better Jacob. Christ is the heir, not just of his father's fortune, but he's heir of everything. He's heir of the whole created cosmos. Every particle of this universe, Christ is the heir of. So he's the firstborn of all creation. But now in verse 18 it says he's also the firstborn from the dead. So what is Paul trying to do here? He's trying now to bookend, if you will, the lordship of Christ. That the lordship of Christ, it's over this church, it's over our lives, but it's also over the entire cosmic order, the history of the universe. That Christ was there in the beginning when the foundations of the world were laid He's the heir of it all. But now he's also the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? He's Lord over the life to come. He's Lord over new creation. Isn't that amazing? You see what happened when Christ came to earth, what did he do? He came on a mission, right? He came on a mission as God to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved, that we owed to God because of our sin. And yet, what did he do? He rose. He rose from the grave. To use that great line from the doors from Jim Morrison, Christ was the one who broke on through to the other side, right? He was the one who went through death, and he came up on the other side. He broke on through. And you see, because of that, he is the firstborn of the new creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. And the glory of the gospel is that that is your destiny as well. That is my destiny as well. The moment that you put your faith in Christ Jesus, the hourglass of your life, the sand is running out, right? The hourglass of your life is stopped. Think about that for a second. The moment you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you have entered into eternal life. Eternal life. It's begun. And yes, you too, yes, I too will one day pass through death, but because of the one who goes before me, because of Christ Jesus... I will share in that same destiny. You will share in that same destiny of resurrection, of life eternal, of life in God's presence forevermore. And If that's not enough, the the mind-blowing reality is that we'll wake up on the other side, we'll wake up in God's presence, and the amazing thing is that God will not throw you out. God will not cast you out of his presence because you now belong there. And why do you belong there? How do you belong there? Let's finish the, the paragraph. Verse 19. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, including you and me, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace with God. Making peace For you, making peace for me by the blood of his cross. And so, how do we have hope? How do we have peace in this life when we flip on the news and see what we see? How do we have peace and hope in the church, which constantly lets us down? How do we have peace and hope in the life to come? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. For in Him all things hold together.